So for the sermon, we're going to be continuing in our series. As you may remember, last week we just started uh, this new sermon series, and we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts together as they just sort of naturally go hand in hand, both written by Luke. Uh, And for now, we're in the Gospel of Luke. We'll do that first, then we'll move on to Acts, where it just sort of picks up in a sense where the Gospel of Luke leaves off. Um, So we're in Luke, and today our our main passage, we're going to look at actually two passages that are in Luke. Uh, But our main passage that we'll start with is Luke chapter 3. So you can take out your Bibles, uh, turn there to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 22. And then a little bit later, we'll turn to to chapter 8. And this passage is about John the Baptist. And so what we're going to do, we'll sort of read through it as we typically do. We'll go through verse by verse, kind of pick it apart. Uh, I'll interject as we go through, and then we'll kind of come back. Big picture, what's going on here? What's happening So Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, (coughs) and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." So I'll just pause here. We're getting sort of a, a date here for when John kicked off his, his ministry. And, and I mean, we get a lot of details here, but sort of to sum it up and sort of be very specific here, we get in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So, okay, in the 15th year of his reign, now you might say like, okay, when is that? Give that to me in sort of like AD, a number, what are we talking about? Uh, and there's sort of two possible years or, or date ranges that, that you could give for this. Uh, and I'll sort of explain why, but but let me give the dates just to begin with. Not that this is of like huge significance to what we're talking about here, but still you want to understand, okay, when are we talking? Uh, the first is sort of AD 25 or 26 for the start of, of uh, John the Baptist's ministry here. The other possibility is it could be about three years later, uh, and it could be like 28 or 29 AD. And you might think, well, like, why, you know, we get, we seem to get the date pretty precisely here, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. And all of these other bits of information that we get to doesn't necessarily distinguish between one or the other. Either way, it could be 25, 26, or 28, 29. And really, it comes down to sort of how we're going to date the reign of Tiberius, and sort of what are we going to pick as the starting point? And there was really a sort of co-regency where there was kind of like an overlap of Augustus being emperor uh, over the Roman Empire and Tiberius, uh, Augustus had sort of formally appointed him as his successor. There was even sort of this whole ceremony that they had where like he was granted all of the authority of Augustus and they sort of like reigned together, sort of a a co-regency. He didn't yet sort of, Tiberius didn't sort of like formally have the title of like emperor of Rome, but carried all the weight and and authority and power that Augustus had. So if we're going to talk about, okay, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, well, do we go with when he sort of started ruling and reigning and had sort of the weight and power of emperor sharing with Augustus? We could do that. Or we could go with, well, when Augustus then finally died and now sort of most formally now Tiberius takes over as emperor, uh, you know, as sort of sole emperor, having solely having that, that supreme power and authority in the Roman Empire. Uh, which, wh- where do we pick as the start point? And so that would be sort of the, the three-year difference there. Do we go with when he first started ruling and reigning or when he sort of formally held that title? Uh, and, and more comes into it than this, you know, just based on this passage, you could say, 
Well, it could be either one. You could go with the AD 2526 or AD uh, 2829. But then you now need to sort of like mesh that. We're not going to get into all of this, but like with all sorts of other dates, right? We want to sort of like harmonize all of the other dates that we see in the Gospels and whatnot and sort of fit the timeline together. And so then as you try to like match it with other dates and so forth, what seems to be the best fit? I mean, scholars will come down on both sides of this. Again, not the biggest deal. I would lean toward the earlier dating of sort of like AD 25, 26, uh, is what they're talking about, but could be 2829, could be either, but just wanted us to, uh, to understand that there. Anyway, going on, sort of leaving the nitty gritty details of the dating behind, uh, we'll go on, verse three. <clears throat> he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So what is he doing? Of course, he's baptizing, but, but what is he calling people to? To repentant faith in the Lord. Right, he's calling people to, to turn from their sins, turn, repent, uh, right, believe in the Lord, which sort of factually, sort of intellectually, yes, the, the Jewish people would have understand, understood who God was and so forth. But that doesn't mean that they had real repentant faith, saving faith uh, in the Lord. And so he's calling them to that repentant faith. And I want to be clear here, right, as we look at, understand sort of for John here, even though we're in the New Testament, He's still really ministering, in effect, under the Old Covenant era, right? Christ hasn't actually sort of revealed himself publicly, begun his ministry, established the New Covenant. That hasn't yet taken place, even though we sort of think of, well, we're in Luke, we're in the New, New Testament. This is under the Old Covenant. I want us to understand that uh, throughout all of, of, of Scripture, all of human history, right, salvation has been by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not like that's, that's just with Jesus, but then, you know, in the Old Testament, it was about obeying the law and so forth. No, it was, it was never about works. Yes, they were given commandments to follow, and there was this whole legal system of the Old Covenant. But salvation has always, even way before Christ, under the Old Covenant, going all the way back to the beginning, salvation has been by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and what John is, is calling the people to is saving faith. Now, at this point, right, Christ hasn't begun his ministry. He's not expecting them to know all the details. And this isn't just for John's era, but think of like the whole of, of the Old Testament. What was sort of saving faith, repentant faith? It didn't mean you had to understand like, you know, if you're in Isaiah's time or even before the time of David, you know, oh, that a thousand years from now, this guy, Jesus is going to be born. It's God, the son in the flesh, and he's going to go to a cross, make atonement for sin, right? It, it, it's not like you had to know all of that, but rather if you were to look at in David's day, what's saving faith? Well, it's, it's repentance. That's part of it, turning from, from your sin, turning toward the Lord, uh, of course. But then it would also be believing in the Lord, trusting in God. Uh, believing in him, but also trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. Understanding like, hey, I'm a sinner. I deserve judgment. I deserve wrath, but but I'm just trusting in God for forgiveness. Even if, you know, a thousand years before Christ, you don't know how that's going to play out all of the details because that hadn't been necessarily fully revealed and, and, and so forth. And again, John's in this era, even though Christ is about to kick off his, his ministry. In fact, John's going to be the one to sort of point the way to him and is preparing the way. Nonetheless, this is under the old covenant era. And so what is he calling them to? He's calling them to saving faith, which is, again, at that era, right, it was to say, hey, turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion toward the Lord, toward God, right? They didn't have to understand all the specifics of Jesus, who was still yet to begin his ministry, but turn from your sin, your rebellion, uh, give your life to the Lord, and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And so that's what he's calling them to. He's calling them to, uh, as it says, Right? He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is repentant faith that results in forgiveness of sins. And then baptism was just the sign, the outward sign of that repentant faith 
that people were coming to. So, reading on. So he's preparing the way at this point, and it even talks about this in our, our next verse. So I'll actually leave that till our next verse. Verse 4 goes on, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and this is quoting from Isaiah chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, right? As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. And this is about John the Baptist. He's that voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. That's what he's doing. He's preparing the way. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Right? So here's John the Baptist. Uh, he's the fulfillment of this prophecy, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, and he is preparing the way for the Lord, right? And how is he preparing the way? Well, he's calling people to repentant faith, right? You sort of strayed from the Lord. You might think, hey, I'm a Jew. I believe the right facts, at least to a certain extent, about who God is and so forth, right? But he's saying, no, but but you don't have a repentant heart. You're far from the Lord. Turn to him in, in repentant faith. Be forgiven and saved. He's leading people back to the Lord and preparing the way for the coming of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, uh, who's about to begin his ministry, right? But then as we're going to see, not just is he preparing the way in that way, but as we read on, we're going to see that he actually specifically talks about the one who is to come after me and basically says, like, I'm nothing compared to the one who's coming after me. We'll save that for when we get there. But but we see that he even explicitly talks about this and is preparing the way for, for Christ and, and is going to be pointing people to him. So reading on verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. And I just want to pause here. We get sort of more specific details in the Gospel of Matthew. Certainly there were crowds of all sorts of people who were coming. But here, the crowd that comes to him at this moment, that then he says, you brood of vipers. Really, he's addressing the you brood of vipers to the religious leaders who were amongst them. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're specifically mentioned. Uh, and John says this specifically to them. That doesn't mean that there weren't others accompanying them who are a part of this crowd, but really this is addressed to the religious leaders. And so John says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? So it, it, what he's sort of saying here is, hey, you religious leaders, you know, you, you put on a show, you might act like, oh, I'm, I'm really one who's, faithful to the Lord. They might claim to, to like have repentant faith in the Lord and, oh, I'm living for him. And they can sort of like on the surface put up this little like facade of looking like, oh, I'm this, this wonderful upright person. But he's saying that's just sort of this facade and underneath that what's in your heart. And if you really get to know those people, you'll see their true colors. And he's saying th their fruit, the way they're really living their lives under that sort of surface fake layer, right? They're not really producing the fruit in their lives that you would expect if they really had repentant faith. It's sort of like, if you really had repentant faith in the Lord, then you'd be living in a new way, obediently, with him as your Lord. Uh, you'd be living faithfully for him, but he's saying, yet that's not what's present in your, in your lives. If you don't have the natural fruit of, of repentant faith, well, then clearly you're not repentant. You don't have repentant faith. And then he goes on, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our, our father, Right? He, he understands sort of their natural thinking, these religious leaders. What are they going to say? What are they going to think? Well, you know, like biologically, like we're descendants of Abraham. We have Abraham biologically as our father. So we're good with God. We're going to be okay. And, and basically John's saying, no, you're not going to be okay. 
right? Even though, yes, you have him biologically as your father, he goes on, right? We have Abraham as our, our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, right? Saying having Abraham biologically as your father, that, that doesn't really mean much at all. But, but having him, in a sense, as your spiritual father, just as Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who are his spiritual children, true children of Abraham, well, they have faith in the Lord, saving faith in him, right? And it's credited to them as righteousness, right? Uh, and so those are the spiritual children of Abraham. They're the ones who have faith. They're the ones who stand before God as righteous. <clears throat> and so that's what he's saying here. And he's hinting at that out of these stones, sort of from those that aren't biological children of Abraham, sort of overly emphatic here by, by referencing stones. But what he's saying is sort of, out of those who aren't biologically children of Abraham, God is going to raise up true children of Abraham, spiritual children of Abraham, who are a people of faith as Abraham was and was counted righteous. And that would be people, certainly some from among the Jewish people who have saving faith in, in the Lord uh, and are spiritual, also biological, but spiritual children of Abraham, but also a great many amongst the Gentiles who will turn to Christ in, in saving faith and will be counted as spiritual children of Abraham, those who, like Abraham, have faith and it's counted to them as righteousness. And so he's saying that's what matters, not being a biological child of Abraham, but it's the true spiritual children of Abraham who have faith as he did, who will then stand before God as righteous in Christ's atoning work on the cross. So he goes on, right, for, out of, for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. He goes on, the ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? What he's saying here, it's not like, oh, uh, suddenly this is like some works-based system, and if you don't produce good fruit, then you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire, imagery of judgment. That's not what he's saying, but it goes back to what he had said before about produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Those who have real saving faith, real repentant faith, well, well, now that, that natural result of that saving faith, repentant faith is, is going to make itself manifest and you'll be living in a new way, producing good fruit. And so those that don't produce that good fruit, well, if you don't produce the natural fruit of repentant faith, well, then you must not have repentant faith, right? Lacking that good fruit is evidence that you don't have that true saving faith uh, in the Lord. And he's saying for those people that, that show that they don't have real repentant faith and show that by their lack of good fruit, he's saying for them, there will be judgment, right? They will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's using the imagery here, sort of agricultural imagery, sort of like if you think literally of like a tree that doesn't produce good fruit, well, what, what good is it for you? If you're sort of some farmer, you're tending this tree and it doesn't produce good fruit, it, it's not good for fruit, what's it good for? It's fuel for the fire, that's all it's sort of good for. And that's what he's saying here, for those who don't produce good fruit and, and that lack of good fruit shows they don't have real saving faith well, they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, that's judgment. So then we read on, verse 10, what should we do then, the crowd asked. And I would say here, sort of the crowd, this is not the, the religious leaders. They'd sort of be all like ticked off and like, ah, we're all upset at this John the Baptist calling us a brood of vipers and blah, blah, blah. These would be sort of like the rest of the crowd, sort of like, well, well, what should we do? I mean, they already know like, turn to the Lord in repentant faith. That's what that John's been, been preaching and, and, and proclaiming. What should we do then? But it's sort of like, okay, so now we have repentant faith in the Lord as you've called us to, but like now how do we live our lives? What, what is sort of this good fruit that we're to go out and produce and, and demonstrate our true saving faith? Like how are we to live our lives faithfully, obediently? The crowd asks, and John answered, anyone who has two shirts 
should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Again, how now are we to live? We've, we've given our lives to the Lord. We've turned to him in, in repentant faith. How, what, how, are to, how are we to live? What should we do? What does he say? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And that was sort of like common practice for tax collectors. This sort of like the amount they need to collect. And then, hey, why don't I make people pay extra on top of that? And then I'll like pocket that extra money and it's mine. That's what tax collectors did. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't collect any more than you're required to. <clears throat> and then it goes on, verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, right? So you have all the people there, they're waiting, you know, for generations, they're waiting for this Messiah to come. And now, you know, here, here's John the Baptist, this great prophet. And they start thinking like, is this, is this him? Like, is this it? Is this the moment? Is, is he the Messiah? And then we read, John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. So, so off the bat, he's saying, I I'm not the Messiah. It's not about me. I'm just the forerunner. I'm just the herald. I'm just here to prepare the way and point people to him. And that's what he's doing now. He's preparing the way. He's pointing people to, to the one who's to come, to Christ Jesus, saying like, I'm nothing. I I'm just the guy who comes beforehand. I'm no big deal. You might think I'm a big deal. John the Baptist out here doing my thing, but I'm nothing. But one far greater than me is coming and I'm pointing you guys to him, right? One who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this is sort of like the job of like the lowest of the low slave or servant. Like that's how low of a job or task this was viewed. It was sort of like only the lowest servant did that work of, of uh, you know, untying the straps of, of sandals of his master. And what's John the Baptist saying? Even though like, here I am, this great prophet, he's saying like, I'm nothing. Like I'm so nothing compared to the one who, who's to come that it's like, I'm not worthy of doing like the lowest of the low type of work for him in service to him. That's what he's saying. And again, you sort of like think through it logically, like, well, then who could this guy who's to come, who could he possibly be? It couldn't possibly be some sort of regular old mere human being. Like it has to be God in the flesh. And indeed it is, it's God, the son in the flesh. And he understands that. And that's why he's like, I'm not even worthy to like, untie his shoes, his sandals. Like I'm nothing compared to this one. And so he's pointing the way to the one who's to come after me. And he goes on, right? So the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is just typical imagery of judgment. Uh, and again, an agricultural image that, that would be familiar to, to the people that he's speaking to here, where you'd be doing your winnowing. You, you know, you don't care about the chaff. You want sort of the grain. You want the, the grain of the wheat. That's what matters. And so you'd use the winnowing fork to, uh, <coughs> to separate the two. You'd sort of throw up all the stuff. It's been trampled out. You have the grain there mixed in with all sort of like the scraps and the chaff. And you kind of like throw it up and the wind would carry away the lighter chaff. And then you'd be left with, with the grain. Uh, and so the grain's what you want, but, but you know, the chaff, that's sort of like worthless. What do you do with it? Like, it's not good for anything other than fuel for the fire. That, that's all it's good for. And again, so he's using this imagery, and this is what's being said, again, of the one who is to come, right? He's ready to judge. He will gather to himself 
his true people, his people of faith, right? He will separate them out from the, the wheat. He will separate them from the chaff, gather them to himself into his barn. But what about the chaff? Those who don't have saving faith in him, those who reject him, well, what's in store for them? Judgment, right? The chaff, right? He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, image of eternal punishment. And then it goes on, verse 18, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, <coughs> Herod added this to them all. <clears throat> he locked John up in prison. So just so you understand what's going on, maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not. Uh, Herodias was married to Herod's uh, brother, uh, Herod liked Herodias, and she seemed to like him. And so Herod talked her into divorcing her husband, which was Herod's brother, uh, and then going uh, talked her into to doing that, divorcing her husband, and then marrying him. And doing this too, marrying him while her, her, uh, her former husband, Herod's brother, was still alive. Uh, and this was something explicitly forbidden uh, in the Old Testament law and in Scripture, and John calls it out. He's like, hey, you're not supposed to do this. This is not okay. And because he calls it out, Herod says, yeah, I don't, I don't like people criticizing me and I'm some person in power. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to throw you into prison. And he does uh, just because John was speaking the truth and calling him out for this, this sin in his life. So then going on verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. So now we get the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. <clears throat> so just looking at this and, and looking at sort of the ministry of, of John the Baptist, kind of looking at this passage as a whole, what's it all about? We're, we're basically told even uh, up front, right? A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, right? This, this is ho his whole role to be that forerunner, that herald uh, before the Messiah, before Christ Jesus, to, to prepare the way, prepare people's hearts for the coming of the Lord, already calling them to repentant faith, right? It's to prepare the way and point people to Jesus, to the one who is to come after him, point people to Jesus. And he's already doing that, right? As he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, right? He's already pointing people to Jesus saying, it's not about me. You think like I'm this big deal here out in the wilderness, but, but I'm nothing compared to the one who's to come. I'm really just about pointing people to him, preparing the way, getting people ready for him. And we even see this as we look at the Gospel of John, and here we get some more details. I know we're in the Gospel of Luke, but we can look at other Gospel accounts that give other details to this narrative. And so we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, and we get sort of some more details to, to John the Baptist, his ministry. And we're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to read first uh, verses 29 and 30. And here's what it says. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Right? So you, can, you can even think of like John the Baptist 
pointing people to Jesus. You can almost sort of like imagine he's like literally pointing like, hey, he's hanging out here. People are coming to him, crowds. They're listening to him preach. And then all of a sudden it's like, look, that guy, behold, the Lamb of God, that's him right over there. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it's sort of like, I've been telling you about this guy. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Again, even they're like hinting at, at the identity of this person. He's saying, you know, uh, for this person, even though he comes after me, his ministry comes after mine, he was even born just after me. Uh, yet even though, you know, he's after me, yet he ranks before me. Indeed, why? Well, because he was before me. Well, like, explain that to me. How was he before you if he was born after? His ministry comes after. He's saying, because indeed, he's God the Son in the flesh. He's the eternal God. He, he ranked, he's before me, infinitely before me, and ranks before me immeasurably, infinitely before me and above me, is what he's saying. And again, he's like, very literally, you can almost imagine, pointing people to Jesus, saying, that's him. Forget about me. I know you think I'm a big deal, but, but like, he's the big deal. I'm just here to point you to him, is what he's saying. That's the guy. That's the Messiah. That's God the Son in the flesh. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see again, just a few verses later, same chapter of John, verses 35 to 37. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Again, you can sort of imagine, it's sort of like John again, he sees him walking by. You can imagine him sort of literally pointing like, it's that guy. Hey, you guys have been sort of listening to my teaching. You're sort of followers of mine. Like, forget about me. He's the guy. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah. Don't follow me anymore. Go, follow him. And they do. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is the role of John the Baptist through and through. It's to point people to Jesus, sort of like, Forget about me. I'm just preparing the way. I'm just pointing you to the real deal. And now the real deal is here. The Messiah is here. God the Son in the flesh, here to die on a cross, make atonement for our sin, right? Go, follow him. He's the one that it's all about. He's pointing people to Jesus. And I realize that, like, we're not John the Baptist. I know that. But there is a sense in which we sort of, like, share this role a little bit. Not in that, like, we're not forerunners. We don't come before and prepare the way in that sense. But just as John the Baptist had the role of pointing people to Jesus, so we also share in that role of pointing people to Jesus. This is something we as followers of Christ are called to do. It should just be part of our daily lives, day in and day out. We should just be taking the time to point people, friends, family members, coworkers, you name it. At every opportunity, we should be pointing people to Jesus saying, this is the one, the guy that it's all about. This is the one who changed everything. He came, it's God the Son in the flesh, and he went to a cross, he paid for our sin in full, he rose again. And if we just repent and believe in him, turn to him in saving faith, we're forgiven, we're saved. We have eternal life, right? We should be daily pointing people to Jesus. But I think if we're honest, if you think not just like New Hope Chapel, but like the American church at large all across the country, we aspire to do that. Like we love the idea of that, you know, if we hear stories of people who are out there like telling people about Jesus, we're all like, rah, rah, that's awesome. That's, that's excellent. But then when it comes to like doing it in our personal lives, it's sort of like, mm, you know, I love when everyone else does that because that's great. But when I have to like get outside of my comfort zone and, and start like telling people about Jesus and I, like, I don't know how they're going to respond. Are they going to respond favorably? Are they going to get all upset with me? And then I'm going to have this like heated argument. How's it going to go? I don't want to rock the boat with my friends or whatever. And so 
all too often and we have all these excuses and we fail to do it. We fail to point people to Jesus. We love the idea of it, but when it comes time to actually do it, so often we just fail in that regard and don't do it. And I want to, to challenge us to step up to the plate and really be faithful and day after day, just be pointing people to Jesus. And I want to speak to the reality that as, as we do this, we're going to get different responses. That, that's just the reality. And in fact, Jesus talks about this. We're going to now turn to our next passage. And this is Luke chapter 8, so you can turn there, uh, verses 4 through 15. And here we get the parable of the sower. And I'll sort of like give, I guess, a, a sort of quick summation of it. I'm not going to explain like every detail. We'll get to it. And Jesus himself gives an explanation of it. So we'll, we'll get there. Uh, but in a nutshell, what's going on here is, is Jesus, in effect, actually really most centrally is talking about himself uh, and what he's doing. And he uses this imagery of a farmer going out and sowing seed. And he uses typical seed sowing practices in Palestine and in that region, in the region of Israel and uh, in that day and age. And the typical practice, like we might think of, I'm not an expert in like modern day sowing, but as I sort of think of like typical sowing today, you'd like plow the ground and then you like put your seeds in there and then you like cover it back over. Maybe that's right. I'm not an expert farmer or gardener or anything. Uh, but the practice in, in Israel back then was you actually sowed your seed first. You just sort of scattered it. And you kind of scattered it abroad everywhere. Um, and, and then what you did after that was then you plowed it, you plowed the ground, and you sort of plowed the seed into the soil. And that was typical sowing practice. And again, this would have been familiar to people. This is an image that those he's speaking to would have very much understood. And as he talks about this, he's, he's again talking about first and foremost himself, but then by extension also his followers who will do the same thing after him as well. And so it does apply to us. I'll, I'll speak to that. But what he's saying is, hey, I'm, I'm this farmer in this parable that he gives who's out there sowing seed. And what's the seed that I'm sowing? Well, it's the gospel message. This is what Jesus is talking about his ministry. I'm going about, I'm telling people all about myself, proclaiming the truth of the gospel, sowing this seed of the gospel message everywhere. And he says, but people are going to respond uh, in different ways. And so, again, he speaks to in the sowing, you know, well, the seed, it falls on different soils. And, and the results for those different soils representing sort of like different types of people, well, you get a different result. You know, whether it's, this is just in a quick nutshell, we'll get to in, in detail, but whether it like lands on the path. So you're scattering your seed and you have sort of a path that people, you know, walk on. And so it just sort of gets trampled underfoot. Birds come and eat it and so forth. And, you know, it doesn't grow. So again, in that sense, like they don't receive the gospel. In other places, sort of initially, whether it's rocky soil or, or soil where there are thorns and stuff, you know, so it springs up a little bit, but then with the rocky soil, it gets scorched. There's, there's not much soil there. It can't hold in the moisture. It withers. It can't really take root well. Or the thorns, they choke it out. And then you have the good soil. And again, these are representative. We'll talk about it more in detail, but it's sort of like different people and the different responses uh, that, that Jesus, of course, is seeing as he's sowing the seed of the gospel message. But he's saying also to his followers, you guys are going to go out too. You're going to be just like me, sowing the seed of the gospel. And so don't be surprised when you get all sorts of varied responses to this gospel message. So let's read it. This is Luke 8, uh, starting at verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And again, Jesus is most centrally the farmer talking about himself, but by extension, we're going to also share in this role. And so we sort of serve as a farmer going out, sowing seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, right? So you have, as he's scattering seed on his plot of land, you sort of sow it, you're scattering it everywhere, but some falls on sort of like the, the, the footpath. 
you know, that's just natural. Some of it's going to fall there. And what happens? It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Probably like familiar imagery to us, even if we're not like expert farmers, if you've ever had to like, just like throw down some grass seed in your lawn and you think of like, I've done it and you maybe get up the next morning and there's like a ton of birds, like every bird in the town has now like flown to your yard and they're eating all the seed. And then you go out there and you chase them off and then they come right back as soon as you leave. And you're like, oh man, you know. So we would get this. Yep, we understand that. The birds come, they eat it up. So that's the path. But then some falls on other areas too, right? Verse six, some fell on rocky ground. And the idea here of rocky ground, it's not like soil that has like lots of little rocks. It's more the idea of, of like bedrock with just like a couple inches of soil on top. That, that's the idea. So you scatter some seed, you know, on that ground and it comes up at first, right? That, that's what happens. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. So it, it sprouts just fine, it comes up, but then the, there's not much soil to hold in the moisture. It can't really get its roots down deep. The sun scorches it, it dies, it withers. That, that's the reality. That happens. Again, something that would be familiar to, to farmers in his day and age. <coughs> and then we go on, verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants, right? That's a reality. You can be sowing seed and some thorns get in there and they grow up and they choke out the plants and, and that, that can happen too. And then we get verse eight. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God, right? So the seed's the gospel message, right? And Jesus and then his followers who follow in his footsteps are sowing the seed, proclaiming the gospel message. Then he goes on, those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved, right? So in a nutshell, you're going to have some people where, you know, you sow that seed of the gospel, you proclaim that gospel message, but, but it's just sort of taken away from them. The devil comes, takes it away, right? They just sort of like reject it right up front, like no thanks, don't want to hear it. That doesn't, they might be polite about it. Most people, you know, in our day and age today would probably be polite about it, but it's sort of like, yeah, not for me, don't want to hear about it, no thanks. It's sort of just this like immediate rejection of it. That's one of the possible responses. Again, that's what Jesus is saying here in this parable. And then he goes on, verse 13. <clears throat> Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. This is sort of representing those who, I would say, they sort of seem to receive the gospel. It's not that they've really heard the gospel and now they truly turn to the Lord in saving faith and then fall away. That's not the reality. Once we turn to the Lord truly in saving faith, right, we will persevere to the very end. Um, but these are people who sort of seem to receive it. You know, they hear the message. It's like, okay, you know, that, that sounds all great and wonderful. Think of in Jesus' day and age, how many people like were following massive crowds who followed him everywhere he went. And yet then suddenly, you know, that he's arrested, people turn on him. And what does he have? Like a handful of, handful of followers and that's it. I mean, even Peter's sort of like denying knowing him to save his own life. Like boatloads of people who've just, they, they were sort of there for the Jesus show while he's doing his miracles, teaching certain things. Ooh, this is exciting. 
but then ultimately they fall away as he's arrested and so forth. So that's sort of the idea. You can have people who they hear the gospel message. They maybe seem to have faith in the Lord. Uh, Maybe they believe sort of the right things about Jesus, but do they really have that that repentant heart that's a part of true saving faith? Uh, No. And then ultimately, you know, as, as time goes by and trials come and so forth, they ultimately fall away, showing that they never really had saving faith in the Lord. And that's what's represented here by that rocky soil. It sort of sprouts up. It seems like, oh, it took root, but not really, right? That, that's the imagery there. And then he goes on. Verse 14, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. I want to, not that mature is like a bad translation, but I think it gives a little bit of the wrong idea. You could easily misunderstand this. If you were to read it with the word mature, you might read this and think like, oh, okay, so like these are people, this soil that we're talking about, these are people who, okay, they hear the gospel, uh, they really turn to the Lord in saving faith, but they're just like, they're Christians who aren't really like maturing much in their faith. It would be easy to sort of understand it that way using that word mature, which is not like a bad translation, just misleading. The idea here is not that these are Christians who aren't maturing much in the faith. The idea is these are not true believers at all. Uh, And really a better translation, sort of like more literally the sense of the word here is like to bring to completion. And it's a word that was used agriculturally to talk about plants. So you might literally, if you're thinking just of, of farming practices, you're sowing your seed and you might have a plant that's sort of like it crops up but, but ultimately, it, it doesn't really bear good fruit at the end. It doesn't sort of yield the result that, that, that is intended. It isn't brought to its desired end or completion. When you're sowing that seed, your desire is like, I want the good fruit, whatever you're planting, whether that's like the grain of wheat or some other plant. Or like, there's the fruit that you want at the end. That's sort of the end goal that you want to be brought to completion. And the, the idea here is that, that that end goal is not brought about. And the end goal here of of sowing the seed of the gospel is ultimately salvation. The the desire is you're sowing that seed of the gospel, proclaiming the truth, is that people would would receive it, truly turn to the Lord in saving faith, and be forgiven and saved and and receive eternal life. And the picture here is that it isn't brought to that, that end, right? That end is not brought about. It isn't brought to completion, that desired end. That is, it sort of seems like, this is another group of sort of like, it seems like they receive it, you know, so, okay, the plant like springs up. It seems like it's going well. You think, okay, this is good. They've received it. But then ultimately, again, you have those thorns that sort of come in and choke it out. And the idea is they seem to have saving faith in the Lord, but then things like, oh, as it describes, you know, uh, riches and pleasures sort of come in and prevent effectively from that, that end result, desired end result from taking place. The idea is sort of like, they seem to have saving faith, uh, but then they show their true colors and reveal that, like, Christ isn't really their Lord. They're not really living for him. They, their real heart's desires for worldly pleasures and, and riches, and they're just consumed by these things. That's really what's Lord of their lives uh, and not really the Lord himself. And so, again, you realize that that desired end result of salvation, that desired end result of sowing the seed, it isn't brought to completion. It seemed like it was on its way, but then you realize, nope, they never really had saving faith at all. And that end result, that end fruit that you desire of salvation doesn't take place because they never really turn to the Lord in saving faith. So that's the idea. This isn't a Christian who's failing to mature. This is someone who just seems like a Christian, doesn't really have saving faith uh, at all. And again, that desired end result of sowing the seed of the gospel never comes about, that desired salvation. But now we get to the last soil. 
Verse 15, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So now we have the good soil, and this is representative of those uh, who hear the gospel, truly receive it, truly turn to the Lord in saving faith, and, and truly are forgiven. They're saved. They have eternal life. Again, that end result truly does come about. That desired end of salvation comes about for them because they truly have saving faith in the Lord. So again, big picture, what are we talking about here? We have Jesus saying, as you sow that seed of the gospel, as he was doing that, as we join him in that, you're going to get different responses. And the truth is we shouldn't be discouraged by it. It's not like Jesus said, oh, too many are the bad soils that, that I don't want. You know, I'll just sort of, why, why bother? Why go keep sowing the seed of the gospel everywhere? No, we, we're to persevere in that. We're, we got to understand people are going to respond differently. As we go out there, we point people to Jesus. We sow the seed of the gospel. Some people are going to immediately reject it. That's talked about here. That's a reality. There'll be some people who truly receive it and truly turn to the Lord and save in faith. And we can celebrate that, rejoice in that. Then there'll be others as well who maybe seem to receive it, but then as time goes by, it becomes clear. They, they fall away, becomes clear. They don't really have saving faith, repentant faith in the Lord. But, but ultimately, that's sort of like above our pay grade. Our job as followers of Christ is just to sow the seed of the gospel. We sow it indiscriminately. We sow it everywhere. You know, some goes on the good soil. Some goes on the thorny soil. Some goes on the rocky soil. Some goes on the path. We sow it indiscriminately everywhere. We're just to go about our lives and at every opportunity be proclaiming the truth of the gospel, sowing that seed of the gospel, saying, ultimately the results, that, that's above my pay grade. That's up to the Lord. He's sovereign. He's in control of that. Uh, and I can't let that deter me just thinking so many people, you know, are one of the bad soils. So rarely does someone truly receive it. We can't worry about that. We just need to say, I need to do my part. I need to sow that seed of the gospel faithfully everywhere, all over the place, and just leave the results up to the Lord. So thinking big picture, sort of our sermon, what's our application? What's our takeaway? I, I want us to follow the lead of John the Baptist. He faithfully pointed people to Christ. And I want us to do the same thing. I want us to get out there in the world. I know it's not always easy in our day and age and our culture, but I want us to get out into the world and faithfully point people to Christ. I want us to be out there, as we talked about, sowing that seed of the gospel, spreading it everywhere, abroad at every opportunity, day after day, telling anyone, everyone all about Jesus. And again, leaving the results up to the Lord. And if we're faithful in doing that, we're gonna get all the different results. Yep, some people are gonna say no right away, uh, but there will be some people who, as you share with them, will truly turn to the Lord in saving faith. And that should just cause us to, to give us all the more drive and enthusiasm of saying, I need to get out there. People's lives can and will be changed. If I'm out there faithfully telling people about Jesus, eventually some people will truly receive the gospel. They will truly turn to the Lord in saving faith and be forgiven and saved and receive eternal life. And that should drive us all the more to be out there faithfully doing it. So that's sort of generally our application. Point people to Jesus, go out there, uh, sow the seed of the gospel message everywhere you go. But I wanna give us a very specific challenge and it's this. I want for each and every one of us to share the gospel with at least one person who isn't already a Christian. You know, I know it'd be easy to just go up to some brother or sister in Christ and be like, I know you know the gospel. Let me share that with you. That doesn't count. I mean, you can do that, but, but someone who's not a Christian or at least as far as you know is not a Christian, share the gospel with at least one person. I mean, if you want to go above and beyond, do two, do three, do four, whatever, but at least one person, get out there, share with somebody. Maybe it's a friend, and maybe God's just been putting that person on your heart, and it's like, I know I need to share, but I'm just uncomfortable about it. 
let this be the week. Say this week, I've got my challenge. I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. Maybe it's a coworker, you know, and you just know, like, I know where they are. I know they're sort of like searching spiritually. They're not a Christian though. And, and I need to go. I, you know, that's the person God's putting on my heart. I just need to go and share about Christ with that person. Go do it. I mean, it could be like a random person. You just like bump into them out at like Walmart or Target or wherever. And you spark up a conversation and sort of like, hey, I like talking about Jesus. That's what I do. He's what my life is all about. And I'm just going to share with you. By all means, do it. But share with at least one person this week. And, and, and my hope is it doesn't just end with this week, but then like continue with that momentum and do it week after week after week. And if we really do it, if we're faithful in that, yeah, I know plenty of people will say no thanks and, and they'll pass, but there will be people who say, man, tell me more. You know, nobody's ever really shared this with me. I've never really understood like what Christianity is all about. And maybe you have opportunity to like explain it a little further, invite them to church. And, and there will be people who will come to faith in Christ and be saved. And so I just want to challenge us. Let's be faithful in this. And if we do, God's going to do a great work and build his church, his kingdom for his glory. Amen. And let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, uh, thank you for the example of, of John the Baptist here, just faithfully preparing the way for you, Lord Jesus, faithfully pointing people to you. And not that we're John the Baptist or in exactly the same role as a forerunner, we're not, but we do still share in a sense in his role. We are called to point people to you, just as he pointed people to you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would just give us a faithfulness in that regard. Uh, just day after day, may we take advantage of every opportunity to be pointing others, family, friends, neighbors, just random people we bump into, just pointing them to you. May we sow the seed of the gospel, just as you faithfully did, Lord Jesus, all throughout your ministry. And as you call your followers to do, may we get out there and just faithfully sow the seed of the gospel indiscriminately everywhere at every opportunity, knowing that eventually, sometimes that seed will fall on good soil and people will respond with repentant faith and be forgiven and saved, receive eternal life. May we just carry out our role faithfully of sowing that seed of the gospel. May we hear the challenge, just even to pick one person, do it once this week. And I pray that we would just continue with that too, that we'd be faithful in this and that then you would work through it and build your kingdom for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.